it's, it's a delight to speak again this morning. And um, just want to reiterate, we're not trying to be contentious or controversial. For me, it's a very simple thing. If we're not being informed by God's word around our sexuality and our lives and how we live, uh, other things are informing us. The culture, what people tell us we should believe, etc., etc., etc. So I think it's good to take some time and just thoughtfully consider sexuality and what that means and what that looks like. And uh, I'm going to talk about the sexuality of Jesus today uh, as part of the foundation of our series. But just to remind you, for those of you that weren't here last week, um, I began by looking at some of the challenges that we face as 21st century Christians as we navigate through this um, minefield of what it means to be a sexual being in our culture, and we, we had a look at a couple of things, and I said to you that um, our culture values instant sexual gratification uh, that's largely disposable, uh, and the attitude towards sex in our culture is really an attitude that is characterized by consumerism, exploitation, and expedience, and we had a look at some of those things. And I said that's resulted in a number of distortions in our culture as, regarding sexuality, um, and so sexism, pornography, uh, and lust continue to be great shapers of our culture, um, and in, 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 particularly in the West. And just this week, we had uh, a Tory MP, Mr. Neil Parrish, resign after watching pornography at a co committee meeting in the Houses of Parliament in front of female colleagues who were aware of what he was doing. How does that work? Uh, what is that? It kind of just summarizes where our culture has got to in terms of how it views sex and, and, and sexuality in our culture. And then, then I, I did um, Prashant. I just see you there. I'm so sorry, my friend. We will pray for you after the meeting, all right? Prashant is leaving us um, and going to Essex. Is that right? Why are you going to Essex? <laughs> no, I'm just teasing. Prashant has been such a delight um, for me. Uh, just the person of who he is has always been such an encouragement to me. I mean, he's a great drummer. He's just a friendly guy altogether. But when he's around, he makes me feel, feel joyful and full of joy. And we're going to miss you, mate. We really are going to miss you. But I'm sure and I know God has got good things for you as you go to Essex. Um, so... Um, I discussed some historical um, responses to these kind of, every culture has tried to handle the issues of sexuality in its culture, so we had to look at some old, uh, ancient cultures, and there have been responses of the church through, throughout the ages, and we looked at chastity in the mon mon monastic age, we looked at faithfulness and, uh, as the Puritans saw it, and then we looked at two negative responses that the church has also had towards um, sex over the years, and those were somehow that... Um, Sexual pleasure is somehow sinful, and Augustine was really the, the man who was responsible for saying that into the, into the history of the church. And that somehow sex is just for procreation. You know, you kind of, you don't enjoy it too much. Just do it as few times as you need to to produce children. And that's another very negative idea that has been sowed into our thinking. And remember, I quoted a guy called Dor Donald Gergson who said this, Sexuality and spirituality are not enemies, but they are friends. 
Sexuality and spirituality are not enemies, they are friends. And so to try and better understand that, we looked at Genesis 1, saw how God had created sex, said it was very good, and that our sexuality, who we are as human beings, is very closely related to us being created in the image of God. And I spend a lot of time trying to explain and, and think about that with you. Um, and so please catch up on online if you missed the first um, session last week because it really is the foundation of what I'm going to say this morning. And then I said that there's an interdependence in how we were created as human beings. And uh, Adam cries out in Genesis 1, uh, Genesis 2 verse 7 with these amazing words where he says of this woman that's been created from him. He says, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And there's this amazing picture right in creation of interdependence between man and woman. That we are not enemies, we are partners, we are friends. We are, need each other to be, to be fully who God has created us to be. And so the biblical narrative shows this covenantal partnership, this vulnerability, this erotic intimacy between men and woman before the fall, before sin came into the world. And that for me is the most amazing thing, is to consider that, that these were gift to human beings before sin entered the world through disobedience uh, of Adam and Eve. And so the, the, uh, the um, great theologian Karl Barth, he said this, that the results of the fall for our sexuality are this, a vacillation between evil eroticism on one hand and an evil absence of eroticism on the other. Isn't that profound? So he's saying we can vacillate between those two things. They're both wrong. They're both evil. So we can give too much to um, eroticism in our life, and we cannot even consider it that it's part of our life, and both of those things are wrong. And we have to find this radical middle uh, as we walk as Christians. And so I looked at um, the celebration of Song of Solomon uh, to finish last week, and we looked at those four great themes, the intensity of love, the restraint of love, the mutuality of love that it's given and received between men and women and the permanence of love. And I, I finished by just saying, let's celebrate what the Bible does say about uh, our, our sexuality and let's consider what the Bible does say we should enjoy and with all of our hearts within the boundaries that God has given us. Yeah? And so we, we ended there. So this morning, I want to look at the sexuality of Jesus. Now you might say, well, what on earth does that have to do with me living as a sexual human being in the 21st century? Um, and maybe you've never heard a sermon on that, on this subject, or read a book about it, and that's really not your fault, because I put it to you this morning that it's something that Christians hardly ever think about, or consider, or pause to reflect on, that Jesus was biologically sexed just like you and I are biologically sexed. He was created as a male, in, as he came as, uh, and was incarnated. And that, for me, really is the problem. Because we don't really think about the sexuality of Jesus, and we have to try and figure out how we function as biological sexual beings, either as a man or a woman, without any help, without considering how the person of Jesus can inform us and help us as we try and navigate that for ourselves. And we can't make any meaningful connections in our life between who Jesus is as a person with a biological sex and 
who we are as human beings that have a biological sex. To put it another way, we fumble around in the dark as we try and struggle to understand what it means to be a sexed human being without grounding ourselves in a solid Christology. That would be the theological way I could put it. Without really considering what Jesus has to do with sex, we try and figure it out for ourselves. And it's like trying to explain suffering in the world without considering the sovereignty of God, for example. It's very, very difficult to do. And so, somewhere along the line in church history, Christians have divorced what the Bible teaches about human sexuality from what the Bible teaches about Jesus as a human being, the humanity of Jesus. And the result of this is that the good news of God's intentions for our entire lives, for our sexuality as human beings, has resulted in a stale set of moral values. So we separate Christian ethics from the gospel and we are left with moralism, holding moral convictions without the root of the gospel, and all that produces, ultimately that produces a legalism in our lives which promotes Christian behavior by rules rather than by the freedom of the gospel, and all that does is suck the life out of you, the joy out of you, and you're left with nothing but feelings of guilt. Anyone been there? And so... I was reading this guy this week called Mark Regenerus, who described, he researched uh, the sex lives of young people in America, um, and he found this, that Christian teenagers, and if you have a teenager or a young person in your life, I want you to consider this, that they generally have an unbiblical, ungospel approach to sexual ethics. And what I mean by that is that he found they just don't connect sex to Jesus in any way. They just don't connect sex to Jesus. And he said this, the majority of religious young people that we interviewed could articulate nothing more about what their faith has to say about sex than a simple no sex before marriage rule. For most of them, that was the sum total of Christian teaching on sex. No sex before marriage, that is it. My friends, if we are doing that to our kids and, and raising our children, it's very like that. It's really, really unhelpful. I'm not saying I don't agree with that, but if that's all we're teaching them without giving them the whole framework into which that might apply, then we are doing them a disservice. I want to encourage you as you talk with your kids, as you raise your children, that you adopt a much broader approach. And I hope today you'll see what I mean as I unpack this subject. What happens when Jesus is when Christians lose sight of Jesus and only look to rules to navigate their sexual lives is that we become self-righteous and condescending people. <laughs> self-righteous and condescending. And we click our tongues at other people's sexual behavior. I wouldn't do that. All self-righteous, all condescending. Somehow we're kind of superior and moral in every way. And I put it to you, that's not an appealing witness to anyone inside the church or outside the church. And moralism and legalism always end up being hip hypocritical and the world tunes out to moralism and legalism. 
So I put it to you that if we are going to rediscover the good news of what Jesus says about our sexuality and its vision, uh, God's vision for sexuality amongst humanity, we have to rediscover the centrality of Jesus in all of this. And Jesus is central to all that we believe in terms of Christians as regards how we behave sexually. All right? And it really, really is foundational for us. Jesus informs, the humanity of Jesus informs how we understand ourselves as sexual human beings. And now I'm not going to say that this is easy. <laughs> uh, I want to put it to you that Jesus is glaringly absent from most discussions on sex or subjects like homosexuality, for example. And I don't mean by that that no one is writing about these things or thinking about things these things, there are people that many people that are. I'm not saying that there's a lack of reflection on the teaching of Jesus into all of these things, because there's a lot of reflection on that. What I'm saying to you this morning is that there's a lack of reflection on the person of Jesus for human sexuality, who Jesus was, who Jesus is, rather than just what Jesus taught and what Jesus said. Do you understand what I'm saying? We have to reflect deeply on who Jesus was as a human being. And so, take for example the debate in our culture right now around uh, affirming same-sex practice and what we should do with that, or what we should not do with that as Christians. These, I've seen in my discussions with people, really goes around in a circle, and this is what it, uh, how it works. Those that oppose uh, that affirm, want to affirm same-sex practice, they point to what Jesus said about love and inclusion. All the time. But Jesus said we should love people. We should include people. And they point to what Jesus taught about love and inclusion and loving people. Those that oppose same-sex practice will point more to what Jesus said about creation, marriage, and how he values those things. And there's, there's this kind of endless circle that people go around as we try and come to grips with these things. And it seems to me that very few people pause and ask another kind of question, not about what Jesus thought, not about what Jesus taught, but about who Jesus was and who Jesus is. And what significance that has as we contemplate sexuality. So I can put it another way. I can ask you some questions on what you think about these this morning. Is there any theological significance? Is there any moral significance to the fact that Jesus was born of a virgin? Does that have anything to do with how we view sexuality. Secondly, is there any significance that Jesus lived a celibate and a pure life? What do we, what do we really think about that? Thirdly, is there any significance to the fact that Jesus never married? Have you ever thought about that? He never married. Is there any significance that Jesus... His resurrected body, his glorified body, is still a male body. Why did I say that? Because after he was resurrected, people recognized him. They knew it was him. Uh, he said to Thomas, Thomas, come and see that it's me. Put your, put your fingers in my, the wounds and in my sides. He was still Jesus. He was still glorified, but he was a male with a glorified body. Are these things... Incidental, are they just sort of things that happened or are they essential to who Jesus is and what can we learn about ourselves as sexual human beings? And 
when I, you know that I love history, so I'm not going to bore you, but whenever we look at church history, it's obvious that Christians have struggled to take seriously the sense of Jesus being a full human being. Um, not, not least that he was biologically male. And uh, Deborah Hirsch writes this. She says, we have inadvertently cultivated a sexless Jesus. And I was thinking about that because one of the other things I love is art. I studied art at school. And if you go to any of the, of the, the, the um, in London to, to see any paintings, especially Renaissance paintings, it's often difficult to think when you see how Jesus is personified, you think, is he male or is he female? Have you ever thought that when you look at a Renaissance picture? It's like this androgy- androgynous Jesus. He's kind of a bit wan, bit pale, sort of a little bit emasculated. You're not quite sure if it's a male or female. And I think Renaissance painters have helped to continue this thing that Jesus somehow was um, a sex, sexless being. And one of the ancient heresies of the church was a thing called docetism, which you might never have heard of. But what it did, it emphasized the divinity of Jesus, that Jesus was divine and supernatural, and it minimized his humanity. So, you know, he wasn't really human. He was much more divine than he was human. And um, they were trying to uphold the majesty of Jesus and the glory of Jesus. But in doing that, they undermined the humanity of Jesus. And uh, there's a guy called Todd Wilson who calls this, he says, this is the Clark Kent really is Superman view of Jesus. That helps us to understand. I like that. Uh, this is the Clark, Clark Kent really is Superman view of Jesus. You know the story, Clark Kent, the ner- nerdy, perspectable journalist who lives on earth and works at the Daily Planet. He falls in love with Lois Lane uh, and he mingles with human beings along the way. But we all know that Clark Kent really is the man of steel, Superman from another planet, Krypton with all these superhuman powers, and, and he's really completely different from everyone, but this kind of guise that he wears is not the real thing. And in the same way, that's what dotatism does for us in our thinking. It kind, of, it kind of minimizes the humanity of Jesus and says that's not really the real thing. He's really much more divine than he is human. And so when we look closely, though, at the Bible... It teaches a very, very different thing about who Jesus is. He was not playing the part of being a human being. He was completely a human being. This is the the wonder of the incarnation that we celebrate as Christians. And he was flesh and blood. And I want to emphasize that this morning. He was flesh and blood. And the, the book of Hebrews reminds us of this over and over again. Hebrews 2.14, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in the humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is Satan, the devil. Jesus had to be fully human to break the power of death and evil in the world. Uh, So what about Hebrews 2.17? For this reason, he had to be made like them. Who are them? You and me. Fully human in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Or Hebrews 2 verse 18 
because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This has radical implications for our humanity and our sexuality. Jesus knew exactly what you go through day by day, moment by moment. As a man, as a woman, struggling in the 21st century, he knew because he overcame those same things in his life. And so this is the beauty, the wonder of what we sang about this morning, the incarnation. And I want to put it to you this morning. It's a mistake to just stop there, and we need to go a little bit further. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we're comfortable with that. We think about that. But I want to put it to you that the Word only not, not only became flesh in our humanity, but the Word also became flesh in our sexuality. Have you ever thought about that? God the Son become, became fully human, not in some general, abstract way, but in a very specific, a very embodied way, as a particular human being born as a man. He had a Y chromosome. <laughs> he had all the physiology, all the anatomy, all the biochemistry of a male being. He did not come as an intersex person. He did not come as a sexless creature, like, you know, some people believe angels are sexless. They're neither male nor woman. Jesus didn't reveal himself like that. He came as a particular human being. He went through puberty. He grew armpit hair. He had fingers that were longer than the men have fingers, particularly the third fingers, longer than all the others. He probably had a deeper voice like men do. He went through what we all go through as a full human being. And he could have come in any way that he chose. He could have revealed himself any way that he chose. He could have come as a, as a woman if he wanted to. But he chose to come in the fullness of God, reaffirming what God instituted in creation, a binary sense of male or female. Jesus came as a biological Male, secondly, ladies, if you think this means that men somehow have the dibs on relating to God, I'm not saying that at all. What did Jesus also do? He fully affirmed womanhood. Why do I say that? Because the scripture says that he embraced the virgin's womb. Have you ever thought about that? Fully embraced the virgin's womb. Jesus the Son. Fully God, the second person of the Trinity, swam for nine months in amniotic fluid. He had an umbilical cord that fed him like any baby. He was born through the canal that every baby is born through. He was pushed into the world just like every other baby is born. And he fed just like any baby at his mother's breast. Have you thought about that? Fully, fully human. And so in the incarnation, God the Son fully embraces male sexuality and fully embraces 
female sexuality, and we can't have one without the other. We can't understand Jesus' sexuality without understanding Mary's sexuality. The incarnation shows not only the goodness of our sexual biology, but it also shows, it emphasizes the interdependence, the complementariness of male and female. Can't have one without the other. And Paul says this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing in 1 Corinthians verse 11. He says in verse 11 of chapter 11, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Isn't that beautiful? There's this independence that we need. And so, through the incarnation, God the Son fully embraced sexual difference that is core to who we are as human beings. And so, sexual difference is not just a feature of creation that God blesses and says is very good. It's an essential part of our existence as human beings, as created beings. And that some, it is something that Jesus willingly embraced as God's Son. And so, that's why... Uh, I've got 10 minutes. That's why as God, when the Bible speaks of marriage and sex within marriage, it purposefully uses the language one flesh. What God joins together, we had a wedding here yesterday, as you can see from all the um, flowers. Uh, and Sean and Julia were married uh, in a wonderful uh, ceremony here. And uh, they are off on their honeymoon now. So that's beautiful. Um, but the, the, the Bible pers- purposefully uses the language of one flesh. One woman is joined with one man in one flesh relationship. And that m- means much more than companionship. You know, the language, I'm marrying my best friend. That's cool. It's good language. But it's much more than that. <laughs> you see, the Bible says it's not just companionship, it's not just friendship. It's actually a oneness. It's, it's a oneness in body, soul, spirit, every way, one. And that's expressed as you have phys- physically have children together. There's a, there's a physical manifestation of the one flesh union, but it's a big deal. It's much more than just being friends with someone. And this is um, uh, the, when the Bible speaks about sex, it, 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 uh, it radi- radically disagrees with um, uh, Andy Warhol, anyone heard of Andy Warhol? Famous pop artist of the 60s. He said this, the great, he, he said, sex is the biggest nothing of all time. Sex is the biggest nothing of all time. Well, I want to put it to you this morning, the Bible says exactly the opposite. He says, the Bible says the sex is the biggest something of all time. It's far deeper and more wonderful and more fabulous than most people appreciate. And for Christians, sex is a big deal because it's a big deal to God. And you see, often, often people that are non-believers see Christians a bit like um, we typically see our parents. And what I mean by that is this. They presume that we couldn't possibly be sexual beings, say, for those few moments that we need to reproduce children. 
That's, that's how the world kind of sees Christians, isn't it? They're kind of those people that are a little bit uptight about sex. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. Truth be told, parents and Christians have a very vibrant interest in sexuality. Why do I say that? Because I'm a parent and I know it's, it's true. I'm still very interested in sex. Thank you very much. And it's true that Christians have a much higher view of sexuality than most people do. And why did I say that? Well, you might not know, anyone heard of C.K. Chesterton, wonderful English writer. He was an um, essayist, a poetry writer. He wrote novels, short stories. He lived in Beaconsfield, just up the road. All right? And um, he was also known for his vibrant personality. He's, he was a big, larger-than-life person, and he was quite a large man as well. And uh, he, he always, always trying, through his writing, his essays, always trying to point people uh, in a, an apologetic way towards truth, towards who Jesus was. And he said this, uh, talking about sexuality, he said, when, when once you have got hold of a vulgar joke, you may be certain that you have got hold of a subtle and spiritual idea. Well, think about what he means. When you've got hold of a vulgar joke, you might be certain that you've also got hold of a subtle and spiritual idea. Bruce Marshall was a Scottish writer. He said an even more startling thing. He said this, young ma- the young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. Really? The young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for for God. So what Chesterton is always trying to point us towards truth, is trying to help us to understand, is that human sexuality ultimately comes to us from God, and even when it's perverted through vulgarity, the teller is really referring to something that is at its root remarkably sacred and godly and wonderful. That's what he's trying to get us to understand. And Bruce Marshall is really trying to say that even when we look for intimacy at the wrong places, in the wrong ways, we are ultimately seeking what God has made us for. That's why it's really important to seek it in the right ways and in the right places. And this drive is powerful in our lives, and it motivates us all in such different ways. And so what both these guys are saying is that at its root, God created sex, and it's remarkably sacred and wonderful and ultimately when we are seeking it for our lives, we are ultimately seeking what God made us for. He made us for this. And we are to enjoy it and celebrate it. And so, God's interest in human sexuality is much more than just making sure people behave themselves. Yeah? God is not like a, a cosmic Dr. Ruth. You know that lady they write in for their, all their problems, sexual problems? God is not like a divine Dr. Ruth kind of speaking out things over the universe to inform people of, of how they should behave. No, he, he, he is in, interested in something much bigger, much larger, much more profound than that. And those that follow him do take sex very seriously because the Christian of picture of sex is much more serious, much more vibrant, much more radical than any other view that is held by our culture. And that's what I said to you last week. Pornography doesn't really think about sex enough. It thinks about sex too little. Reduces it to a physical act and separates it from all the other profound things that God intends for us to enjoy 
through sex. And so you might say, well, that all sounds a little bit old-fashioned, and it sounds a little bit passé, but uh, the Christian view of sexuality is really, really a radical one because it says this. <laughs> it goes against culture, and it holds up human sexuality as nothing less than an icon of the inner life of God. Sex, duality, and spirituality are not enemies, they are friends. And so far from being a big nothing, it actually is the biggest something that you and I get to enjoy as human beings. And that's why next week we're going to look at sex within marriage, enjoying that. And the week after that, we're going to look at the challenge of being sexual people and being single people. How do we navigate that? And I trust that these things will be, continue to be a blessing in your lives as you think about them for yourself and ask God to show you in your own life how you can live in a way that honors Him in every way. With your body, with your thought life, with your husband, with your wife, as you journey together in your friendships. You know, just to, to finish, one of the ways that I think we can really, really, really can help single people in the church as they are waiting to be married or if they choose to be single for their lives, whatever it is. One way we can help them to fully live out their sexuality as men and women is by making the church and a place of incredible friendship, of deep friendship, of wonderful friendship that fulfills you as a human being. Yes? Yeah, absolutely. Because if we're going to say to people, well, we want you to... Be patient, not rush into a sexual relationship because it's not good for you if you do. Uh, well, how do, how do they kind of fund that intimacy with people if we don't help them? Yes? It's a great challenge, isn't it? I didn't say it was going to be easy. <laughs> but it's possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. Shall I pray for you? Jesus, we want to thank you for who you are. Thank you for how you revealed yourself to us. Thank you for all that means to us as human beings. It helps us as we reflect on our own lives, our own sexuality, and how you've made us and what that means. And Lord, as we consider all these things, as we journey forward together as a church community, help us, Lord, to cultivate a deep, deep love for each other and deep friendships in this church community that we can really stand on arm in arm and help each other as we navigate through these things. And Lord, it's not easy. We need your spirit. We need your presence. We need your guidance in our lives. Help us as we speak to our kids, even from a young age. Help us to help them to see who they are, who they've been created to be, how, what that means for them, and how it can be an absolute joy in their lives just to celebrate who they are as people. Help us, Jesus. It's, we, need, we need wisdom from heaven. Uh, we, we don't want to be self-righteous, condescending, moral people that look down on others. We want to be those that bring life wherever we go. Help us to enjoy the freedom of the gospel in our own lives and live it out so we can show freedom to everyone else that does not yet know you. And we trust you for these things. In the beautiful name of Jesus. Everyone says, Amen.